Bonjour and welcome to another episode of Street Focus, an ongoing exploration of urban photography. I'm your host, Valérie Jardin. My guest today has photographed nearly every significant world event over the past 30 years. His photographs have made more than 40 covers of Newsweek magazine. I am so thrilled to introduce to you internationally acclaimed photojournalist and street photographer, Peter Turnley. Bienvenue, Peter. Thank you. I, I'm just so thrilled. Can you believe that it's been nearly a year since we we met in Paris and had this lovely conversation at the outdoor cafe in Le Marais? Uh, yes, no, without a doubt, time... <laughs> Time certainly is going by very quickly these days. It's, yes, and uh, and so many things happen in a year. Um, so, okay, some some people may not know who you are. So, who is Peter Turnley, and how did he become a photographer? Um. Okay. Well, um, who is Peter Turnley is a question that I probably ask myself pretty often, but. Um, uh, and the beautiful thing is that the answer to that question is um, something that, that continues to evolve. Mm -hmm. um, I, I began, well, I would back up and say that maybe unlike a lot of, uh, I think, members of the photographic community, um, I really don't think that photography at the end of the day is a lot about cameras. I, I think um, cameras are simply a tool. I, it's a tool that I respect uh, very much. And I think it's, it's essential to, uh, in many ways, just like a great athlete or um, a great musician, it's very important to be in phase with one's tool. But at the end of the day, I think the most important thing about photography is is the verb to share. Mm -hmm. um, and as such, uh, if we accept this premise that photography is essentially about sharing a moment that we perceive, that we observe, that we feel, sharing with ourselves and with others for now and for time, um, then I think the, the most important discussion is is what goes into why we choose to to frame a moment and stop it um, that we want to share with ourselves and with others. What what are all the things that go into that? And I think essentially um, many of the things that go into that relate to not only who we are as a person, but in many cases who we would like to be as a person. Um, so if I reflect upon myself, who I am as a person, I think, as I said earlier, that that, that in, in a beautiful way is, is always uh, an evolving phenomena. But I, I, I think it would be important in thinking about oneself and, and all of the elements that that relate to our perception, our observation, and our, our personal psychology, our, our consciousness, or even our subconsciousness, that, that without a doubt, um, it probably has a lot to do with uh, our childhood, um, maybe the environment of where we grew up, uh, and also, uh, in many ways, the, 
the sort of texture and uh, essential ideas of of the world of the time when one was growing up. So in my case, uh, there are several things that I would always kind of point to. I um, I, I grew up in the in the Midwest in a, a mid-sized industrial city called Fort Wayne, Indiana. I also was born a twin. Um, uh, my twin brother David happens to be a Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer. Um, I grew up in a family, though the the state that I'm from is is generally politically a rather conservative state. Um, I grew up in a family that was extremely progressive politically. Uh, my father um, was very involved in civil rights in 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 the area where I'm from. Um, at the dinner table of my household, uh, almost every day of my life, there was a really vibrant discussion um, about the haves and have-nots of the world, uh, a discussion about whether or not the American dream was a, an ideal or a reality. And, um, and my father and my mother both um, uh, instilled in, in all of the children of our family were four children. I have an older brother and also an older sister and my twin brother. There was always a, a kind of an idea, a strong idea floating around that, um, that one should try to, to do something with one's life to make the world a better place. Um, and my father also, uh, his feelings were, were hurt profoundly if he thought that anyone in the world ever was judged on any basis other than simply the content of their character. Um, so these were, I think, kind of prominent uh, uh, ideas and, and values that, that form my, my childhood. Um, as well as that... Um, my mother was a pianist, so I grew up, uh, there wasn't a night of my childhood when I, I didn't go to bed hearing music. I didn't realize until later what a gift that was. It mm -hmm. was just a kind of backdrop of, backdrop of my childhood. Um, both my mother and father were very, very creative people. Um, and, um, uh, and I think there was also um, uh, another element uh, of, of my childhood that was essential. Um, you know, if we, I, I was born in 1955, I'm, I'm now 60 years old. Um, and, um, 1968, uh, if anyone with an honest memory uh, worldwide that would have been 19 years old at that time would, would have to say that, uh, particularly in America and, and in Europe, um, uh, most times anyone 19 years old probably didn't share the values of their parents. It was a time of tremendous questioning. Um, and I was 13 years old in 1968. And often I think that, um, you know, people kind of, when we think about the impact of, of the, the dynamic of a, of, of a, of a decade or of a period of time of a generation, we often do think about people that were, you know, sort of 19, 20 years old. Mm -hmm. But what we lose track of is that for young people, often those moments are literally the total backdrop of, of one's life. So in my case, um, the sort of realities of the world in America of, of the late 60s of 
the civil rights movement was um, was very powerful at that time. Uh, it was the Vietnam War was going on, and and there was a tremendous generational challenge of to authority uh, because of of a uh, an objection, a sort of public generalized objection to the the Vietnam War. Um, it was a time of where rather than being considered unpatriotic, it was considered a real form of public service to, to question, to question authority. Um, and young people questioned everything. Yes. Um, Cartier-Bresson once said that, um, that, that, that with visual expression, that it's, that it's very important and, and exciting to, to look at the world with a questioning gaze. And I have to say that I, I think that, for me, questioning questioning what is um, was has always been a very natural thing, a, a very natural part of my my view of the world. Um, and in photography um, and in storytelling in general, um, I I think that what excites me often are are photographs, moments that I choose to to frame that ask questions that don't necessarily offer easy answers. I, I'm not interested in trying to hit somebody over the head and tell them what they're supposed to think. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm more interested in, 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 in often presenting some rather profound questions um, that often as well in, involve enigma and, and mystery. So um, another reality of my childhood was that I was uh, an obsessive athlete. I, I played every sport. I, my favorite sport was football, but I I played uh, every sport, literally um, baseball, basketball, wrestling. Uh, you and hockey. David both, right? Both my brother and mm-hmm. I were, were rather obsessive athletes. So until the age of about 16, the only way that I really knew how to express myself was, was physically. And I did that um, uh, very prominently. Um, and then when I was 16, I... I had a, a a ligament tear playing high school football, and and uh, when I was in the high school, when I was in the hospital, my parents brought me a book of the great French photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson, and I, I to this day I don't know how they knew even who he was in 1972 Fort Wayne, Indiana, but they did. And and as I laid in the hospital bed, I I looked through this book that was called The Face of Asia, and and I was blown away by how um, this gentleman's vision offered me uh, uh, an indication that there were all these amazing moments of life that I was walking by without paying attention to. So now for the first time in my life, after I got out of the hospital with this knee injury, up until that point, ever since the sixth grade, I, I had been involved in a, form, uh, a sports practice of one form or another from the end of school until dinner time. Um, and now with this knee injury, suddenly I I had sort of four hours after school free every night that I had never had before. So I bought a camera um, on the heels of of seeing this book by Cartier-Bresson. And, and every night after school, I suddenly, um, I began to drive to the, essentially the inner city of my hometown. Fort Wayne, Indiana is a, a very classic mid-sized industrial city of about a hundred and about 175,000 people. And um, I would park my car and, and I would get out and I would walk. And, I, and, and overnight, um, my life 
really changed. Uh, two, two things emerged that were important for me. The first thing was that the camera seemed to represent a, a form of a passport, which would allow me to go anywhere and feel welcome mm-hmm. there. Um, the second thing, and maybe the most important thing was, is that I, I found that, that through the process of making a photograph that I found a voice. I found, I, I, overnight, I, I found a way to speak, that, and I found a way to speak that felt to me, um, uh, that offered me a voice. But besides photography offering me a voice, it also seemed to me that it, it offered a voice to other people that maybe too often didn't have a chance, a voice that didn't have a chance to speak loudly or, or very visibly or, or, or um, in, in, in a way that, that could be heard. And, and, and this, those two things have really been a constant for me now over the last 40 years of my, as my, of my life as a, a photographer and a visual storyteller. To this day, I, I feel that that a, that that a camera is essentially a form of a a, a passport, um, and that that a, a photograph, the process of making a photograph, offers me a, a chance to to speak and 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 sometimes to speak actually rather loudly. And I'm and I'm very grateful that that photographs have, I think, many times offered other people that whose plight often goes unnoticed uh, a chance to speak as well. Mm-hmm. Now, was that the end of your sports career at that point? The, the f- photography just everything well, fell into not, place or not entirely. I, I mean, I, to this day, I, I still, um, I love physical activity. Um, You're a dancer. I, I love to dance. <laughs> uh, I, I, I grew up in a family where, as I said, there was music around all the time. And, um, my father was a very good dancer and, um, everyone in my family, uh, loves to dance and, and dancing was something that was, was very natural in, 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 in my household. And, um, but I, I would, you know, I, I, I don't, to, at this point, um, I would say the, Probably the I, I walk a lot. Um, I'm a very physical person. I, I um, I'm very active. I have a lot of energy. Um, I suppose to, at this point, um, you know, riding a bicycle is uh, I, I I I bike a lot. Um, but I seem to be always on my feet. And mm-hmm. I I want to talk about this a little bit because you know, first of all, um, something that's very important to me. Um, They're, they're kind of two things. Um, I don't believe that photography is is really essentially a formula that that can be taught uh, in a photography sort of one on one class. I I think that um, what is so beautiful about photography is actually um, in many ty- many ways it's often everything you can't teach. Uh, it has to do with with um, incredible, amazing human contact that can take place between the eyes of, of two people when they see each other. Um, it has to do with a tremendous level of, of, of instinct of, um, uh, that has to do a lot with our, our sort of inner radar. Um, uh, but I also think that photography is a, um, without a doubt, it's a, a very physical endeavor. Um, The, the second thing I want to say is that I, I, I don't like to ever 
you know, I, I think photography and visual expression is something that's beautiful because it's, it's there for all of us. And, and what's really wonderful is each of our own personal expressions. So I would never want to indicate to anyone, you know, how they should make photographs or what they should photograph. That's all a very personal choice. My, my experience tells me that, um, something that I think that often is, is, uh, is missed maybe instinctively by a lot of people when they think about photography is, is, is the realization that, um, that when we choose to frame a moment that just like writing or just like music, that many of the choices we make, um, have a lot to do with the sort of grammar and the points of punctuation of our, of our vision. So I think of photography as a very physical endeavor. You have to move. Um, I, and I think that the focal length of, of a camera that you choose has a lot to do with your points of punctuation. And I, and I think that there are many results of these choices we make that are not indifferent to um, what the viewer uh, is able to respond to when they see our photographs. For example, um, you know, a lot of people I find that are nervous about photographing people, their, their first instinct is that they would like to use a long lens yes. and, and stand Hide behind it. <laughs> yeah. Well, they would like to use a long lens and, and stand rather far back. And they have a sense that they're not being obtrusive this way. Um, but I think that what is not, in many ways intuitive, but is really important and profound is that in many ways, just like looking through the scope of a sniper rifle, when you, when you stand back and use a long lens, you're, you're looking at something, you're not feeling it. And, and you're just like the scope of a sniper rifle. The, the camera lens is, is coming in on a form of a sort of a bullseye. Um, uh, that's a very narrow. So, the, the story would have to be extremely strong in the middle of that bullseye, but you, you lose all sense of context of where that story is taking place. Um, and maybe most importantly, I think, is that, that what's not intuitive is that when you stand back and you're looking at something, the person that sees the photograph you make also is looking at something rather than feeling it. Whereas if there's a moment, a, a story that has emotion, that has life to it, when you when you approach it in a, and, and, and become very close to it, then not only the photographer, but the, first, the person that has the chance to see your photograph has a sense that they were actually there. They, they feel the moment. And, and all of the, all the, by using a wider lens and being much closer, um, all of the context of the story can help add such powerful information to, to the moment. Um, so for me, these choices of of the focal length that, that one uses, um, have a lot to do with, you know, people talk a lot about, uh, a notion of style and vision. And, and I think these choices just, so, you know, something again, that, that is not so intuitive often for, for photographers is a, a writer that would be writing a short story. If, if, if they change, uh, writing style, every sentence of a short story, you lose the reader. There's no continuity. There's no flow, um, and it's the same thing when you're you're using a zoom lens and you're every every photograph you're 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 using a different focal length rather than moving your body. At the end of the day, then when you look across the set of photographs, 
there's no continuity of vision. There's no flow. So Mm -hmm. this is why on a, on a more sort of nuts and bolts level, um, I really like to to choose one lens and, and I think it's really important to move. What is your favorite focal length, Peter? Um, I, I use a lot, um, either a 28 millimeter or a 35 millimeter Mm -hmm. lens. Um, I like them both very much. Um, occasionally I, I would use a lens a little bit wider, like a 24. Um, I like to be very close to the, the subjects that I, that I'm photographing. And I, I want the viewer to just like myself, I want them to feel like they were there, that they, they felt the moment. And I think for me, um, you know, I, I think one of the putting photography aside, because I actually think that too often, uh, you know, in this world of photography, we talk too much about photography and we're kind of missing the point. For me, life is a lot more important than photography. Photography is my is a sort of my form of expression to talk about life. But at the end of the day, I'm a lot more interested in the life that I photograph than I am necessarily a photograph. I, I, I adore beautiful photographs, of course, but but at the end of the day, it is the the power of the human story that I think is essential. Yeah, I I love to hear you say that because I always say as well that to me it's more about the experience than it is about the resulting image. I mean, the resulting image will be like the cherry on the cake, but it's about being out there and the connections and Well, I I don't I don't know if I entirely agree with that. I I I do think that the the final result is very important. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that, um, I think actually it's essential uh, in many ways. Um, uh, but this relates to, um, uh, also maybe some of the, uh, rather specific, um, uh, well, actually in a kind of a general way, I, I don't entirely agree. I, I, I like to say that, um, you know, when you're making a photograph, um, it's whoever you are. I, if you pick up a camera at that moment, uh-huh. it's really worthwhile and important to own the idea that you are a photographer. You're not kind of a photographer. I, I don't agree with the idea about we don't we don't just kind of make a photograph in in the sort of dis- Cartier-Bresson decisive moment spirit of the world. You know, for me. When a story is powerful, it's it's like uh, it's like an NBA moment. NBA moment. It's like it's like when the Lakers are down by one and there's only a second on the clock. This isn't the time to be you know thinking about your you know the the stroke of your shot. You've been shooting baskets for six hours a day your whole life. This is the moment you got to win the game, mm-hmm. and 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 you live to win the game. And the reason that I think this is important about sort of not just kind of making a photograph and only the experience. Is it is that for me at the end of the day, the essential thing is if I'm going to photograph life, I, I feel that it's really important to honor that life. Yes. And 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 I feel that it's it's dishonorable to only kind of make a photograph. When I if I'm going to if I'm going to kneel down in front of a person that I'm only two feet away in a in a quiet moment in a church in Havana, Cuba, for example. And I'm going to spend maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes, literally from two feet away, looking into the eyes of a person that's in a quiet moment of prayer. I feel that if I'm going to be part of that moment, that 
I have to honor it. And part of my honoring that moment is to make, make a photograph that's powerful, that will actually touch the people that will, will see it, just like the moment touched me. And I've seen many, many times that, that this is absolutely essential, that, that the person that you're photographing picks up on, on, on that sense of being honored, that, their, that this moment is being honored. And that's why they become, a, they become, they are not only, not only do they become part of the moment, but they are the essential part of that moment. And I think it's really essential to, in, in many ways on a sort of human level, to, to dignify the, the incredibly beautiful and generous access that we often have to, to people's hearts and to their human story by making a photograph that's actually going to touch the lives of other people. So I, I, I don't think that the experience is only the thing that is important. No, and it's putting all this intent and not, yeah, it's, I, I see exactly what you mean. And, uh, and you, you put it so beautifully. Um, it's the, and again, it's all about the camera being our, our passport to entering those lives and capturing those moments. Without it, you know, there we wouldn't have that opportunity well at the end of the day I, I i could give an example but you know i i have some easy examples um but i on a certain level i i i kind of don't want the, the this conversation to only relate to you know very dramatic uh, moments of human hardship i i but you've seen a lot of them. I have seen a lot of that, but I, I, I just recently um, was honored with a major retrospective exhibition at Cuba's most important mm -hmm. museum, the Museo Nacional de Bellas Artes, the Museum of Modern Art of Havana, Cuba. And I, it was a great honor. I was the first North American photographer since the Cuban Revolution to be offered a major exhibition in Cuba's most important museum. And the title of the exhibition, um, Momento de la Condición Humana, which means Moments of the Human Condition, was essentially a, a reflection of, of my view of, of what interests me with visual expression. And what interests me is the whole gamut of, of human life. On one end of the spectrum are moments of, of life when it's at its very best, of, of tenderness, of, of love, of friendship, of romance, of, of affection, of beauty, of elegance, of dignity. And then all the way on the other far end of that spectrum would be moments of, of life that, that touch upon oppression, hardship, cruelty, um, inequality, uh, brutality, um, and then everything in between. Um, and it's that whole timeline of, of life that, that really interests me. Now, I, I don't I, I think this is maybe one way in which I feel um, somewhat distinct from, from a lot of these very convenient boxes of photography. I think often, and maybe in many ways in a kind of underhanded, kind of detrimental way to, to the person expressing themselves through photography, I think the photography and art world often, too often kind of conveni <clears throat> conveniently likes to sort of put people in a box as either being on one hand, a fine art photographer mm -hmm. or a photojournalist. And for me, I think that, or a fashion photographer or a street photographer, all these kind of easy sort of facile names. And in my mind, 
um, when photography is done very well, all of those sort of boxes represent basically the same thing. And it represents uh, a moment that, that involves light, uh, form, texture, and most importantly, um, emotion and, and something that touches the human heart. Um, and so I, 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 I'm interested in sort of the whole sort of gamut of, of human expression um, and, and life. Um, so you're a photographer. When people ask you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say, I'm a street photographer, or I'm a photojournalist. You're a photographer. Well, I think that I'm all of those things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but at the end of the day, I, I don't really care particularly about yeah. those titles. I, 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 what I do care about is a sense that, that something that I have perceived and observed and felt in my life um, one way or the other has touched the life of another person. Um, and I think a photograph, a great photograph is what is amazing about really beautiful photographs are they're, they're like, they're like waves on the ocean that they spread and they, and they just keep going out and, and they get bigger and bigger. Um, I had the very, I've had some amazing opportunities in my life. I, When I was a young man living in Paris, um, I moved to Paris in 1978 full-time and lived there um, full-time from 1978 to 2001. I still have a, a home in Paris, and I now split time these last 14 years between Paris and, and New York, um, and I travel constantly. But my, my only home for a period of more than 20 years was, was Paris. And um, I've probably lived now full-time in Paris longer than I have anywhere else in the world. And as a young man, I, I had the great fortune of, of working as an assistant to the great Paris photographer, Robert Doineau. Mm -hmm. And Doineau was, was, like, was a friend, but he was also a bit like a father to me. And... I learned some amazing things from Duano that, that have stuck with me my whole life. And the most important would be things that were on somewhat of a spiritual level. But Duano had a very clear understanding that if a, if a photograph was to have, was, if you really accept that framing a moment is about sharing for now and for time, that the only way that that, that experience could, could take place and be powerful would be if you could find the image. Something that people don't know about Duano because he, he dissimulated his, what I'm going to say, with, with the lightness of his spirit and with his photographs are so full of, of, uh, of love and affection, tenderness and, and humor. Um, but behind all of that was a man that worked incredibly hard. And he had a personal sort of... Um, Uh, principle that he never would go to bed before he had developed all of the, the film that he had shot that day and that he had meticulously captioned every photograph um, on a roll of film and, wow. and, and filed away in a sequential order the negatives of the, of the photographs he had made. And I saw that when I was working at his atelier in the southern suburbs of Paris of Mont Rouge in, in the early 1980s. You know, all day long, people would call and and his daughter would pick up the phone. She who worked with him, uh, Annette or Francine, and people would ask to, they, they needed a photograph of, for example, 
uh, a portrait of, of somebody that Duano might have photographed in the mid 1950s, literally, um, you know, 30 years before. And they could find the photograph in 30 seconds. Wow, and, such... and, and what I have seen from that is that now Duano has passed, but his, his oeuvre, his life's work, just continues to grow and, and to touch people. And there are books and exhibitions. And, and it's because, you know, his work, he was very organized. And, 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 and just like I said, like the wave on an ocean, his, his photographs embody his spirit and they embody his, his view of the world and they, they embody his perception of, of, of the power of the human story and, 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 and what he perceived and wanted to express just continues to be expressed, you know, on and on and on and touch so many people. It's a lot like, for example, um, you know, I, I've, I've, I've been so inspired by my early days of visiting the Rodin Museum in, in Paris. And I would stand and I would look at the, the, the Kiss, for example, his fam- one of his famous marble statues. And, and I would be standing there. And his statues would make you want to actually, with their sensuality, they were so full of life, you wanted to touch them. And it was almost like you could, when you would look at the kiss, it was like you could, you could, you, you could feel the passion of that moment. And I thought many times, you know, Rodin had died, but, but his spirit stays on and just lives forever through the, through the work that, that he left behind. And, and I feel the same way about a photograph. Um, and I think that there is an element of photography that is is rather uh, it's very enigmatic, it's very mysterious, but I also think it's very powerful. And that that is this this kind of opportunity of trying to sort of defy mortality that we we want to hold on to a moment forever that it doesn't disappear and that it just continues to to touch people. Um, you know, growing up it, growing up in France, and my my room my bedroom was entirely decorated with Dueno's images. Um, this, this, is, uh, this was my life. And I was not a photographer, didn't even dream of it at the time. Right. But that's, uh, it, it was so, so much beauty. And yeah, wow. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to come back to another point. Um, we were talking about this idea of, of whether or not it's good enough just to have the experience of making a photograph. Um, again, I, I, I really want to underline, I, I, I have no desire or interest to, to preach to anyone. Every photography should be whatever anyone wants it to be. Absolutely. Each of us, each of it come, each of us comes at it in our own way. But I know in my mind, um, as in my life as a photojournalist, um, I have had the incredible privilege in many ways to, to witness the human existence in some of its absolutely most difficult moments. Mm-hmm. And the only way that I could ever have felt that I would have a right to, to be in a position to witness such moments and to actually make a photograph was that if I thought that that something that I was going to do might actually touch other people around the world and, and potentially, hopefully, inspire action so that, that the plight of people that suffer um, might be addressed and, and, and change could take place. I once photographed uh, a young boy in, in Somalia that in 1992 at a time when 
the village where I made this photograph, there were 200 people dying a day of starvation. There's nothing more, there's nothing more despairing than to witness people die of starvation because, you know, if they simply had food, they, they could live. And people have often asked me the question, so how could you stand by and make photographs and not a- actually help these people? And I think that's an absolutely valid question. The reality is, is that when I went to Somalia in 1992, the magnitude of this problem of famine was so great that there was no way that I could singularly uh, help all these people. But I did have very deep in my heart the idea that if I, I, I didn't have the idea or any sense of pretension that I alone could, could change this dynamic, but I had witnessed the, the results of, of images that had been made collectively by colleagues and friends of mine in Ethiopia in 1986. And I'd seen how much that that imagery had had mobilized the world to help send food aid to, to Ethiopia at a time when people absolutely needed it. So I had in my heart this conviction that that if I could make a photograph and if if my my colleagues, my associates, my friends, the whole world of visual communicators and 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 and, and journalists could convey to the world the absolute desperate necessity of of, of these of these very very unfortunate people that were dying of starvation that that maybe this would help mobilize aid so i will remember always making a photograph of this young boy in in somalia and and my sense that of course at the moment that i made this photograph um there's no doubt that that my heart wanted to cry but i felt i had absolutely no right to allow those kinds of emotions to take place at that moment. Mm-hmm. What I needed to do was to, in, a, in the most powerful way possible, was to funnel all of my energy and my emotion into making a photograph that was powerful that would touch other people so something could happen that would, would help this young man. When I went home, only when I went home and I, I would shut the door of my apartment would I allow myself to, to actually, in a very private way, grieve over those moments that I saw. Um, but I want to come back to my sense that, that for me, what was implicit, the only thing that, that, that gave a right to my being present in such a place is if I could put all of my energy and heart into trying to make a photograph that would honor this young boy and honor his plight and honor his life and hopefully bring attention to, to his and in a collective way, other Somalis need for, for attention at that moment. Mm-hmm. Do you still go on assignments, Peter? I do. I, I, for a very long time, um, I would say from about 1984 to 2001, um, I never knew when I woke up in the morning where I would be at night. Mm-hmm. I, uh, and my life was, was totally devoted and, and accessible to being available to to cover moments around the world that I thought were essential as part of the, the human story and, the, and, and human history. Since 2001, I continue to travel um, almost uh, nonstop throughout the year. Um, and I, I don't think of my life as a visual communicator as being particularly different. What, what is different is that now, um, rather than, than going out the door to cover the latest major news story, um, 
over these last, I would say, 15 years, I have devoted most of my time to, to very long-term stories that relate to moments that are essential to the news of the world and to, to human history and geopolitics. So I'll give an example. I, one reality, as I mentioned before, was that there was a one, one constant in my life from 1981 to essentially 2001, is that, and that was that whenever I would travel, I would come back to Paris. Paris was my home. And living in Paris was, was a choice. Um, yes, on one hand, it was without a doubt the best airport in the world because one could get to anywhere in the world from Paris better than probably any other airport, better than London, better than Frankfurt, uh, had very quick ties to um, all of Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, Africa, the Middle East, and one could easily get to Asia, Latin America, and North America from, from Paris. Um, but beyond that, um, beyond that sort of practical aspect of, of living in Paris, living in Paris for me, what was essential was that I would, I would constantly be exposed to, to war, conflict, suffering um, on, on major level that, that really moved my heart. And when I came back to Paris, in spite of the fact that Paris is a large metropolitan city that has its own problems um, uh, and many of the problems that other great large urban cities have, that one, one reality that I think is indisputable is that nowhere else in the world can one find in a public way such a wonderful expression on a daily basis in the streets of a city of moments of love, romance, affection, tenderness, humor, um, and, and, and beauty. And, um, yeah, and that backdrop more. of Paris was really important mm -hmm. to my heart. It was a kind of a form of a therapy for therapy. me. Um, and I, I have always walked the streets of Paris. So uh, three years ago, I, I, I self-published a book that has been extremely successful called French Kiss, A Love Letter to Paris. Um, and I published this book just like a major publisher. I used one of the, the best printing companies in, in the world um, in China uh, my first print run was 3,000 books. Um, the book comes, it's a beautifully printed book that comes with a very elegant slipcase. And the only way that one can buy this book is through my website. Um, and every book that I, I sell arrives to the, the purchaser's home um, signed. And it, and, and it really means a lot to me that, that to have this sort of contact with a, a community of people that, that buy my book. Um, the book now has, is in its uh, second printing and and um, and continues to uh, you know to be collected by people all over the world. This last year, um, six months ago, I self-published a, a new book called Cuba: a Grace of Spirit, um, which is a book of thirty years of photographs of life in Cuba. I first started to go to Cuba in nineteen eighty-eight. Um, I, my first trip to Cuba was uh, actually 1989. My first trip to Cuba was uh, a, a, a trip with Mikhail Gorbachev from Moscow. I flew on on his plane to to I, I flew on a, a plane that accompanied Gorbachev to Havana for a state visit to Fidel Castro. And ever since that first visit, the the thing that has struck me so much about life in Cuba and the Cuban people is this indomitable spirit um, that represents determination, uh, joy, movement, elegance, dignity, um, and hope. 
And I, I've always learned so much about lessons in life from, from the Cuban people. So in my work life as a photojournalist, I, unlike what most people think, um, I was never dispatched anywhere. Um, most people think that a cameraman or a photographer covering world news gets a phone call and says, Turnley, we want you to go to here or there. Well, that, that never happened to me that way. It was expected that I would wake up in the morning and, and read four or five newspapers a day. I would listen to the BBC World Service every hour on the hour, and I would make a decision of what I thought the major news story of the moment was all over the world. And I would always, before I would ever make a phone call to the publication I was working for, that most of those years was for Newsweek, where I was on contract for 20 years. Well, actually 18. But I, before I ever made a call, I would find out, one, if I could get to the story, if I had access to it, and if I would have a way to get actually film and photographs back to the publication before a deadline. And when I had ascertained those things, I, I would make a phone call and I would speak to the foreign photo editor of Newsweek and, and, and explain why I thought it was important that a dynamic in, in world news that was taking place, that it was important for me to be there. And most often, my editors would agree and, and I would go. Um, now these five years ago, um, I asked myself what I thought one of the major news stories of the world was. And my, 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 my sort of nose for geopolitical news told me that Cuba was a place that was under, in, 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 in the process of an incredible geopolitical and historic change. And so now over these last five years, I've made more than 40 trips to Cuba. Um, Cuba has become almost like home for me. And I, I published six months ago a new book called Cuba, Grace of Spirit, which is a book that pays tribute to the incredible spirit of the Cuban people. Um, another thing that I, I would like to say is that I, what moves me when I wake up in the morning every day, um, you know, I, I knew Cartier-Bresson. I, I, I first went to Paris um, when I was 19 years old. And and I, I moved back to live full-time in Paris in 1978. Um, when I first moved back to Paris, I, I took a job as a printer at Picto, which was probably was the mecca of black and white printing anywhere in the world. Um, mm -hmm. Probably the best black and white printers in the world worked at this great photo lab in, in Paris called Picto. And this was the lab where Cartier-Bresson's prints were made. And I took a job as a printer in this lab um, specifically because I wanted to be around both Cartier-Bresson's work and the people that, that printed it. I never studied photography. Cartier-Bresson taught me from an early age that, that vision is a function of what we know about the world, not what we know about photography. So I've always felt actually quite sad that people would choose to, photograph, to, to study uh, in a formal way uh, in their undergraduate education photography. I, I, I highly uh, support the idea of taking classes in photography, but I think the most important thing would be to learn about the world, to learn languages, to learn uh, political science, history, anthropology, sociology, uh, modern art, um, the history of art, all of these things that, that actually go into this, this dynamic of, 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 of provoking our perception. I, I think it's actually quite easy to learn how to use a camera. I believe I could teach, and I teach 
many street photography workshops around the world. My, my street photography workshops are very popular. I, I teach workshops in Paris, in Havana, Cuba, in Venice, in Sicily, in Rio, um, all over the world. And New York as well? In New York as well. And, and these are all street photography workshops. Um, and I embrace this kind of decisive moment sort of spirit of photography. But what I want to say is that I, you know, so much has been written and said about Cartier-Bresson. Um, he's had major exhibitions all over the world. I've, I've read the essays of, of curators of his major exhibitions. People talk all the time about, you know, his connection to geometry, to composition, to light form, to decisive moments. But I, I think there's something about Cartier-Bresson that I actually have never read anywhere or heard anyone else say that I think is the essential. I, I think that in discussing Cartier-Bresson, people often miss the most important thing. And this important thing, I think, is actually almost on a level of, of spirituality. Of, of, it's a form of faith. And that is that the only way that Cartier-Bresson could have seen all of these moments that he saw was that if he, he had a tremendous sense of faith that life can be interesting, otherwise he would have walked by these moments like so many people, other people do. You know, a lot of people wake up in the day, every day, and they walk out of their door, and they have a sense that life is going to be just like it was yesterday, that nothing's going to be new. Mm -hmm. Some people walk out of their door like Cartier-Bresson and think that at any moment their life can change. And I think this is what makes all the difference, is this form of conviction and faith that life can be beautiful, majestic, and, and transforming. Um, and I think I, I had the great good fortune to have known personally many of the great photographers in the world. I was very close friends with Edward Buba. Um, I was good friends with André Cartes, with Cartier-Bresson. I, I saw Cartier-Bresson many times during his lifetime. I was fortunate to know Willie Ronis, um, W. Eugene Smith, Robert Frank. I, I always sought out my heroes because I wanted just to be touched by their spirit. Edward Buba said to me once, one day we were having a glass of wine at a cafe in Paris. And he leaned over and he whispered in my ear. He said, Peter, if you keep your heart and your mind open and your head up, there's a gift waiting for you at the corner of every street. And for me, this form of expression is not a lot about photography. It's a way about living life. And at the end of the day, that's what is most important to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There is a gift at every street corner. And the ordinary is so extraordinary if you, uh, if you pay attention. I, I have developed a tremendous love for, for Cuba. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I was offered a major exhibition of my life's work at Cuba's most important museum this, this last year. The museum, the exhibition took place for four months. It just ended, right? It just ended in, in March, yes. Mm -hmm. And... This exhibition was visited by more than 35,000 people, not only Cubans, but people from all over the world. And what really struck me was that this exhibition entitled Moments of the Human Condition, which represents this, this whole scope of life, from life at its best to its worst and everything in between, that so many people that visited this, this exhibition, that, it, that this exhibition seemed to, the, the moments that the photographs and the, the human stories that, and the human condition that these photographs speak about seem to, to, to speak to people in a place that they needed. It, it, it seemed to open up a human discussion that, that, that was necessary. 
And very interestingly, um, maybe I've never uh, encountered any group of people um, uh, like the Cubans to whom these photographs spoke to, to so much. I think something that often people miss about Cuba, um, Cuba right now is, is perceived through many stereotypes and cliches, many that are very accurate of of old architecture, old cars, uh, a world that's kind of a bit anachronistic. Um, all of that is somewhat true. But, but what I think is essential about Cuba that people miss is a, a form of spirit. And so much of that spirit is not only genetic, but however you feel politically about, about life in Cuba, um, I, I actually think that, and, and, and however... The, the system of life in Cuba has worked or not worked. I, I think to understand Cuba, it's essential to understand the powerful ideas of the Cuban revolution. These ideas were beautiful ideas and, and, and full of humanity and, and, um, and real power. And these are ideas that, that people in Cuba discuss and think about on a daily basis um, from the day they were born. And as I say, um, Cuba, without a doubt, is, is going through a, a process of change. And I think the average Cuban is very excited about change. And I think, without a doubt, there are, are aspects of life in Cuba that, that need to change. I think the economy, in, in many ways, um, uh, in Cuba has encountered tremendous problems. And, um, and I think that uh, a more um, dynamic uh, life of, of a free enterprise is, is something that, that, that Cuba will welcome greatly and it will be... Uh, very, very, very important for Cuba. I think we can't forget that Cuba has also suffered from 50 years of an embargo and having been isolated by uh, a political uh, point of view by the United States. And I also think that this, this, this amazing moment that uh, President Obama has um, offered by, by extending a, a hand to Cuba and, and offering friendship in a form of a a mutually respected, respectful dialogue that I think that's a, an incredibly important and, and, and wonderful thing for the life of Cuba and for the life of, of, of both countries of the United States and, and for Cuba. Absolutely. And you were just there recently when President Obama was on his uh, recent visit, weren't you? Yes, I, I, I did photograph uh, President Obama's recent visit to Cuba. And, and I think it's, it's, very hard to underestimate what tremendous impact that visit had on the life mm -hmm. of Cubans. I think that visit offered tremendous hope. And I think that when President Obama spoke to the Cuban people on national television and, and he said, he acknowledged that at this moment, while he was extending a handshake to Cuba, that he acknowledged that the United States has many of its own problems, of problems of poverty, of economic problems, of problems of, of race, um, and et cetera, um, that when he acknowledged elements of, of, of America's own vulnerability, that by extending a hand in this form of mutual respect rather than preaching um, and trying to tell another country what they should do, but, but by extending a hand and, and, and opening up an opportunity for dialogue, that, that, I think, was, was a, a handshake that Cubans have been waiting for for now more than 50 years, and it was very powerful and very important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Peter, I 
I could listen to you for hours. You made my job extremely easy today. <laughs> <laughs> I've just uh, so much, so much we could we could talk about, but I want to be respectful of your time. And uh, where what's next? So you're in New York as we're recording this, about to well, uh, to go I'm, back I'm, to Paris. I'm New York. Um, I'm. I'm always very happy. I will leave for Cuba. Uh, I'm sorry. I will leave for Paris on Monday night. Um, Paris has been my home. It's been my uh, Paris is very much in my heart and it has been my adopted home now for more than 40 years. Um, I'm a resident of France. Um, and, um, while I was born in the United States, uh, and now I, I also keep a home in New York. I, I have a home in Paris and, um, And in many ways, Paris is where my heart's at. And I haven't been back in Paris now for several months, as it happens. I've just been traveling very much to, to Cuba over these past months. Um, and I, I'm always so happy to, to land in Paris and be back in my home and, and to walk the streets of Paris again. I'll be teaching a workshop in street photography in Paris next week. I teach four street photography workshops in, of Paris a year. Um, Uh, as as we finish this uh, this this um, this conversation, I, I, I would like to thank you for this opportunity. I would love for anyone listening here, any of your your listeners or your your public, to be aware of all of my uh, street photography workshops. That all of the information can be found on my website www.peterturnley.com. Um, I would also be delighted that your your listeners be aware of my. My two most recent books, um, mm -hmm. uh, French Kiss, A Love Letter to Paris, and Cuba, Grace of Spirit. Um, the only place where these books can be uh, purchased is exclusive, exclusively on my website, again, www.peterturnley.com. And all books that are purchased are signed. Um, and, uh, and I want to thank you, Valerie, for this, uh, this opportunity to share some some some. Heartfelt thoughts and, uh, so and ideas. I so appreciate, so appreciate it. And I will link all this on the show notes as well as some of your images. And uh, and I hope we we have another coffee soon in Paris or elsewhere. Uh, I'm spending more and more time in New York as well, but uh, Paris is home. And just like you, I just I land, and it doesn't matter if I haven't slept for. 36 hours i i'm uh, i'm on the streets right away walking those streets and and it's just home and uh, très bien avec plaisir à bientôt peter à bientôt valérie and we are at the end of another episode of street focus please head over to thisweekinphoto.com slash street to subscribe to the show and don't forget to uh, subscribe on itunes and leave a rating and even better leave a comment my name is valérie jardin And you've been listening to Street Focus. Now it's time to grab that camera and hit the streets. Mm -hmm.